kitchen And get off the couch and be on your grand mission It doesn't take a lot, just a little bit of vision So turn up the heat and get to cooking in the kitchen Y'all mumble mouth fools need to go back to school You talk about hip hop but you're choking on drool Or sputtering on something else Ain't gonna mention it I won't talk about it but spit me out your mouth Hello everyone if you are listening to this, it means one of two things. Either you are in my Bible as literature class, or you're just a Bible, a self-professed and proclaimed Bible nerd like me, and you want to know more. And so kind of two things we're doing with this podcast is one, we're going over the nuts and bolts themes and patterns that we go over in my Bible's literature class, and then we'll also explore some other themes However, we're looking at the Bible as a unified book, a book that tells stories, but we are breaking it down and analyzing it from a literary standpoint. Um, But through that, the work does stand for itself, and we're trying to leave you as a listener and as a viewer to kind of draw your own conclusion for what this all may mean. Now, we might get into a lot of different topics, subjects, and ideas, but we're looking at how it all fits together as a story and a method of storytelling. That being said, this episode partners with the background unit I did in my class. If you're not in the class, this is good background information that you may or may not know and related to the Bible as a literary work, or the Bible as a historical document, or the Bible as a method of storytelling, etc. There are a lot of different ways to look at it. So here are, this episode is going to be a bit different because it's going to be less exploratory and we're, we're digging into background information, history, and then um, how we bring in perspectives from other fields to help us lead the Bible, read the Bible from a different lens. So let's get into it. So first thing, really interesting fact that the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. So any any um, book that you see on a bestsellers list, it's always number two to the Bible. The Bible sold more copies of any book in all time, and it continues to sell more books per year than any other book, period. Um, it's written in three original languages, and so uh, primary languages are Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Jesus and his disciples probably spoke Aramaic, although there are, is some debate on that, and there's some different nuances. There are other languages mentioned in the Bible, but the people who were responsible for writing it out physically primarily spoke those three languages. We're talking about the authors. More than 40 authors have contributed to the writing and the composition of the Bible that we know of now, depending on who you read and how you read it, it could that number could be a lot larger, you know, because you got to consider things like, did Moses write the books of Moses, a.k.a. the Torah? If he wrote it, did he actually write it down himself? Was it comprised by scribes of his, or was it comprised by people who knew the stories of Moses and wrote them down and gave him credit? Was it a collective of people? And that's just one example of how 
we attribute, you know, maybe this series or this book to one person, but it could have been a collective of people. And you kind of get into this same thing as if you, you literary nerds out there, if you know Shakespeare and the theories behind Shakespeare being one person being a pen name or being a collective of people and then just putting his name on it. Is it one author? And this, for the sake of the argument, let's just say William Shakespeare is one singular guy who had his name on those works, but he wrote with a collective of people. Do, does one author get credit or do the eight to 12 to 30 different people that he wrote with throughout his career also get credit? You can also think of it in terms of like a movie, right? You have a script writer, you have a director, you have a producer. They all tie in and are implicated in the production of that movie. But, right, the director is the one who gets the main credit. You can kind of look at biblical authorship that way without getting into, you know, the, the, the aspects of divine inspiration, we will have a podcast where we get into what that means, what it was meant by the people in their cultures, and how that plays out today. However, that's not the time for this. We're getting into the background. Again, three continents that the Bible was written on, written in parts of Africa, Asia, and Europe. And we have to know also that the Bible is not written chronologically. And so there are different arrangements of the Bible depending on which historical period you look at. And then you start looking at the Hebrew Bible versus the Christian Bible. You know, the Hebrew Bible, all three parts of the Hebrew Bible are the same 39 books that are in the Christian Old Testament. However, the arrangement and the order of them is different than the order and arrangement of the books in the Old Testament, which would be the Christian Bible. And so, but in either case, the books are not listed chronologically. There are different reasons for the different arrangements of the Bible. And then book chapter, or sorry, chapter and verse wasn't added till way later. Now, why was that? Well, because originally these were written on scrolls. And so scroll technology and dealing with scrolls had a different need than when books were finally starting to be bound and put in volumes similarly to the way that we see them now um other things that we want to talk about in relating to the background of the bible so you know the tanakh is what we would refer to as the hebrew bible again it's the same 39 books that are in the christian old testament but their arrangement is slightly different. And so the T stands for Torah, the A stands for Nevim, and the K stands for Ketavim. And you put it all together, it forms this Hebrew word called Tanakh, which refers to the Hebrew Bible. Again, there are a lot of religions, spiritual practices that are all based around the Bible. You know, obviously Judaism is based from Biblical concepts, the Hebrew Bible, Christianity has grown out of what is called the Bible as well. Even Islam relates itself back to the Bible, although they follow um, the Quran. But one of the big key points to realize in reading the Bible from a literary perspective 
And people who are believers and people who believe in this as a way of life, and I am one of those, would argue and ask, well, why, why do we need to break down the Bible as a piece of literature if we're looking at a belief system? And the reason being is that when you read a story from the Bible or any story of that matter, you're seeing a reflection of yourself in that story. And so if I'm seeing a reflection of myself in it, whether it's a great piece of fiction, like I really love the author Joe Lansdell, um, great Southern slash Texas writer, writes some really cool detective-ish Southern um, detective novels. But I love his stories. I see pieces of myself in, that, in those stories. Um, there's lessons you can apply to life or you can read it for entertainment as well. But the point being that there is a connection when you read something, when you view a piece of art that hits home deep within the core of who you are. And that is why or breaking down the Bible as a work of literature can actually deepen and widen that understanding. And it can help you make more sense of not only what you're reading, but of the world around you and also um, the people around you. But it comes from this tradition that the Bible is based in a tradition of what's called wisdom literature. So if you've ever been reading through the stories in the Bible and you're like, this didn't make sense or this ended problematically. Now, I think we do have an, uh, a tendency in Western churches today to read. We oversimplify a lot of the biblical stories, wrap them up in a tight little bow and attach a moral to them when the original intent of that story was actually not to do so. It was supposed to end in a problem that was supposed to allow you to think and to wrestle with the idea, with the theme, with the question asked which then would require you to examine yourself, examine the world around you and how you interact with that world, which then would lead you back to the story to read it again in a different light, in a different context. And this is what wisdom literature is and was. It was a genre, a style of writing that was meant to keep you coming back as you explored yourself and the text and the world around you. And so when we're reading the Bible, we have to understand that it was it, it is, you know, part history, part cultural preservation. Um, you can even get in so far as part myth and part folklore and believers listening to this will get mad when I say that. But I say part myth, part folklore in the sense of the stories that they tell. You tell a myth about a certain culture. You tell these stories from the folklore of a certain culture, it communicates important ideas, messages, and ways of seeing the world of those cultures that just saying that it's a, a literal story with a black and white this and that can do. It communicates more meaning. 
And so then the question would arise, well, is it true or not? Just because something is told in a mythological fashion or a folkloric fashion does not mean it's any less true. Our Western version of true means can we measure it scientifically? The ancient understanding of truth was much different. How do you communicate something that you can't measure? How do you do it in a way that will connect with another person? That is why these stories were being told and how they are being told the way that they are. Other fun facts about the Bible. Um, I mentioned before, you know, there weren't originally chapters and verses and these weren't added until around 1200 AD. And again, that's when the emergence of the book type volumes that we have now started happening but even then that was because monks and scribes would take the scrolls and write them down in these volumes then of course when you get the printing press now bibles are able to be printed on mass not just handwritten and copied by scribes and monks and monasteries the bible's also the most stolen book in history it has been stolen from libraries from temples, from monasteries, you name it, more than any other book in history. And that's pretty cool. So a fun fact, and it's a big influence of the modern Bible that we've seen today, it was the meeting of the Council of Nicaea Nicaea in uh, AD 325. This is where people from our world leaders and scholars from around the world, a Christian had emerged on the scene, you know, three centuries in the making of becoming this massive worldwide religion, this massive dominant religion. And so when that happens, they get together and say, hey, like we have power, we have influence. We're not just this little group, these little um, ragtag groups of people meeting in households anymore. This has reached a national and a world stage. So we need some ground rules and some things that we're going to abide by as a Christian culture. Council of Nicaea meets. They come up with the Nicene Creed. And then this also heavily influenced what books of the Bible were included in the literary canon. There are books that people had read before that that were considered part of the canon that weren't included. Now, we're not going to get into all the reasons of that today. I'm just spitballing facts here. <clears throat> so, But that was an important moment in the history of the Christian church. You want to know more about that? Check out Eusebius' History of the Christian Church. It gives you a really good breakdown of church from slightly before Christ all the way through about 400 AD. Um, Other things, first copy of the Bible in English is produced by John Wycliffe, and that's in 1384. And I say copy because, I mean, this was like hand copied by a bunch of different people. Then with with Gutenberg in the uh, invention of the printing press, William Tyndale is the first person who prints a New Testament in English. You know, we had the Gutenberg Bible, and don't, all you fact checkers out there, don't quote me on this. The Gutenberg Bible is printed slightly before that, but it's in German. Again, I'd have to double check that. I don't have those historical notes in front of me at the time. 
And so there's a lot of different terms we could go through to really break this down. If you're in the class, you have a, a vocabulary list to help you with that. Um, <clears throat> but just some terms to know for those of you general readers or listeners. And those of y'all um, who are listening probably are familiar with this. But, you know, we got to know what a parable is, right? Which would be a short story that's meant to illustrate a moral lesson or a theme. And Jesus is famous for telling those. We have the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. We call that, and it's um, you know, its origin in the Hebrew Bible. These are also known as the books of instruction or the law. Uh, we have a prophet, and that's a person generally regarded as an inspired teacher or proclaimer of the will of God. Again, you can go down a rabbit hole as to what that means and how a prophet is supposed to function. Then we have Messiah. All right, so Christ, the Christians believe that Christ is Messiah. Jews and those of Jewish heritage believe that Messiah has not yet come and Jesus was just a great prophet. But this term Messiah is actually a Jewish term, meaning it's the deliverer of the nation of Israel as prophesied way back in the day in the Hebrew Bible. We have the Tanakh, which we talked about, which is a contraction in Hebrew, which stands for Torah, Nevim, and Ketavim. Includes all the books of the Christian Old Testament, but <clears throat> the arrangement's different. They're arranged more, excuse me, according to theme and according to literary style. Now we have two other divisions of the Hebrew Bible. So, right, first is the Torah, that's the T in Tanakh. The N in Tanakh is for the Nevaim. It's the second division of the Hebrew Bible. Um, we also know it as the books of the prophets. Um, and then you have that divided even further into former prophets and latter prophets. We have the third division of the Hebrew Bible, which is the Ketavim. And this is known as the writings. So it's the last part of the Hebrew Bible. It actually ends with Second Chronicles, which is much different than the Christian Old Testament that ends in Malachi. Um, and this is known as the writings because here we have a bunch of the poetry. We have historical documents and records relating to the history of the nation of Israel. Um, again, the law is another name for the Torah. Then we have this word, the Pentateuch which is the law or the Torah, right? First five books of the Old Testament, but it was the, the Torah translated into ancient Greek and a lot of the New Test the Old Testament translations you read in English actually weren't translated from the original ancient Hebrew. They were translated from ancient Greek and that ancient Greek had been translated from ancient Hebrew. So it's a third cousin translation. And so... And I challenge anyone out there doing this, get your hands on an Old Testament translated directly from the Hebrew to English, and it's a much different experience. All right, another term, we got the prophets. And so in the Christian Bible, these are books of history, poetry, and prophecy in the Old Testament. Of course, we got the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? Old Testament, first part of the Christian Bible, 39 books and they do correspond with the Hebrew Bible, although the order and arrangement is different. And then 
We have the New Testament, which is part of your Christian Bible, not part of the Hebrew Bible. And um, it's originally written in Greek, contains 27 books, and that's our Matthew to Revelation. And an interesting side note, there are parts of that, although it's written in Greek, parts of that where the disciples are moving about might have been spoken in Arabic or in Aramaic, excuse me. So other things, we got archetypes, symbols, and motifs, and these are important as we go through the class and as you read your Bible because um, they're kind of one and the same. They're members of the same family. Obviously, we got symbols, talking about symbolism. So any object, person, place, thing, or situation that can have a literal meaning but it also has a figurative meaning, and that figurative meaning represents something else, connects us to a bigger idea. Now, if we have a symbol, and that symbol is repeated throughout a story, it forms a pattern. The author is trying to catch your attention or make a point through the repetition of that symbol. That repetition of that symbol, that image, and that symbolism is called a motif. All right, and then if we have these motifs, these repetitions that appear in multiple works of literature or art or even dreams people have, then this is called an archetype. So it all starts with a symbol. A symbol that's repeated within a singular work becomes a motif, a motif repeated throughout multiple works and across cultures different times, historical periods, then that becomes an archetype. And we'll talk about the father of archetypes here in a little bit. So what we're going to get into now here is Joseph Campbell and his influence on how we can read stories. Um, so he's an American author and professor. He is friends with George Lucas. George Lucas is um, <clears throat> just a big fan of Campbell. And so you see something emerge in Star Wars called the hero's journey. Now, most of us are familiar with this term and how it operates because you were sitting in a high school class at one point and you had to study what we call the arc of the hero's journey. If you're not familiar with that term, you see it in any almost any type of hero tale. It's the tale of Luke Skywalker, for instance. But we see this emerge around that time in popular culture because of Lucas's friendship slash fanship with Joseph Campbell. And Campbell is the first guy who studies how um, storytelling and how storytelling relates to heroes. And he found commonalities in all these stories telling of hero tales. And then he created this blueprint that said this is the hero's journey. The journey of a hero has these things in common across cultures. Again, you see that with Luke Skywalker in... Star Wars, you see it with Harry Potter in the Harry Potter novels. You see it with Frodo in Lord of the Rings, although I, I argue that Samwise is the real hero in Lord of the Rings, but I'll get off of that. <clears throat> and so Joseph Campbell's the first guy who puts a label on this, and then he studies myths across culture and compares them and finds these patterns, and he creates terms out of them. 
So one of the terms he creates is this idea called the monomyth, meaning that every mythological tradition that we see is an attempt of telling one big meta-narrative about the history of humanity and the history of the consciousness of humanity. So his point was that, hey, the stories of Jesus and the stories of the Greek and Roman gods and the African folk tales and you name it, even the literature we read today, even the movies we view today are all attempts of people trying to make sense of the universe to try to tell the same story. Now, there's different arguments you can make about what that story is, but that is this idea of the monomyth. And that's important when we start looking at reading the Bible as a work of literature, how these stories that are really old, some of the oldest stories ever told and recorded, how they have similarities to stuff we see in the present day, both in stories that we're telling and in real-time events. So Campbell even breaks this monomyth idea down into what he calls the functions of a myth. He breaks them down into four categories. He says, myths all have a function, or we can look at it this way. What are the four reasons why people tell stories and write them down? He says there's a mystical function, that's one, a cosmological function, that's two, a sociological function, that's three, and a pedagogical or a psychological function is four. So one, the mystical or the metaphysical function would be to awaken one's sense of mystery, to get them to begin asking questions about their function and place in the universe. So one reason someone would tell a story was to awaken this sense of wonder within a person so they will start asking themselves that, that question of who am I and why am I here? That's one function of a myth, according to Campbell. A second function is what we call the cosmological function, and that is explaining the shape of the universe, but also it has a... It's this idea of being able to tell a story in a way that tries to explain some type of phenomena, either scientifically or the reasons people behave that they way they do. Um, the third function is the sociological function, and it is a myth or a story that's told that will support what society is currently doing in that day, in that age um, so you could take that in a variety of ways, but it's one where that function or the reason that story is told is it's giving you a portrait of what society is like at that time. And then the last function, the pedagogical or the psychological function, this is a function. And this is what a lot of the biblical literature gets into, especially the New Testament is it is a story, a myth, a whatever you want to call it that is told in a way that's supposed to guide an individual through the ups and downs of their life. And then if you put all those together, you see different Bible stories all functioning in all four parts. But if we keep that in the back of our mind, it enriches our experience in reading the text and us growing in our relationships with ourselves and the world. 
around us. Now, I told you we'd get into the father of archetypes, and so we got to talk about Carl Jung, or Jung. So Carl's a psychologist. He actually originally wants to be a minister, but I don't know exactly what happened. I didn't dig that deep into his biography, but he becomes a psychologist, and he creates the term known as archetypes. Um... He also uh, created other terms that we're familiar with today, like synchronicity, the collective unconscious, and why we have introverts and extroverts. Introversion and extroversion were actually terms that he came up with. The big deal of what we get to in terms of literary analysis when it comes to Jung are the ideas of the of archetypes and the collective unconscious. Um, so the collective unconscious is this idea that all of humanity from the beginning of time to now, we have this shared storehouse, this shared bank of memories that we all experience. He calls this the collective unconscious, and that's why somebody a um, hundred years ago might have had a dream of their teeth falling out. It represents powerlessness, and then somebody today might have a very similar dream that relates to a very similar problem. Jung would say, oh, that's you're just tapped into the collective unconscious. That is why we are telling that tale. Um, and then in order to tap into this collective unconscious, um, Jung studied archetypes, which are repeating patterns, symbols, and motifs Throughout literary traditions, throughout dreams, his patients were having as a psychologist, uh, through art and through song, to try to find out a bigger meaning to the root cause of both human problems and trying to find additional meaning in the stories that we're telling as humans. And so a little more about archetypes, according to Jung, um, he said that this idea that archetypes influence across any domain, they have an influence across any domain of experience throughout your life. And so an archetype, you can see experience and find that pattern, not just in stuff that you're reading, but in events that are occurring in your life, in art that you're viewing, in dreams that you're having, even in the types of people you are meeting. And so that's kind of how the archetypes work. And we'll be talking a lot more about those as we dig into these Bible stories when we get there. Young, or what's called Jungian archetypes, we broke these down into three different categories. There were archetypal events, archetypal figures, and archetypal motifs. So archetypal events could be these touchstone events in someone's life. So again, they, re they relate to an individual, but also if you're reading a story or viewing a work of art that has one of these things, there's an archetypal relationship that happens that grounds you into this collective unconsciousness, which is shared with all of humanity, past, present, and future. Um, archetypal events, though, such as birth, death, marriage, initiation ceremonies and rituals, or separating from parents, right? The good old coming of age 
tell, as we would say. There were also archetypal figures. They function the same way. They both have symbolic representations and also literal meanings and effects in their influence. Archetypal figures we might recognize both in our own lives and in, in, in stories, movies, art that we consume. The mother the father, a child, devil, a god, a wise old man, a wise old woman, a witch, a sorceress, a sorcerer, and a hero. And there are more you could add to the list. A trickster, for example. And then we have archetypal motifs, which are motifs you see that get shared throughout storytelling across cultures or dreams from the Jungian sense, from his own experience. And that's where the motif of the apocalypse or the end of the world, even when you dig into Revelation in the Bible, there was a whole genre of, that was called um, apocalyptic literature that that comes out of. We could compare that to modern day dystopian literature or a great flood, another archetypal motif or a creation story, another archetype motif and then Jung goes on further to break archetypes down so you got archetypal events archetypal figures archetypal motifs then you can break those different types of archetypes into different component parts to learn more about yourself and we're not going to get into those at this point we don't have to go that deep into them yet and so that is really, in a nutshell, these are some tools in your belt that will give you a better context by which and through which to read and experience the Bible as a work of literature. Because the whole point of it is, right, to get to know more about the world, to get to know more about yourself and how you relate to that world in your own experience. So when you're reading the Bible, you're really reading about yourself. Let's keep that in the back of your mind, and thank you for listening, and we will continue more throughout the journey. Peace.